Alright, ladies and gentlemen, let us begin. We are up to lesson four of the art of marriage, a course that tells you how to turn marriage into a masterpiece. Alright, um, let's begin. Again, we're on page. What page are we on here? Uh, page 88 in the book. That's where the first reading is. We're not up there yet. Um, so here's the deal. We all know this to be true. And that is that relationships and marriage can bring out the best in us, can also bring out the worst in us. Can bring out the best or the worst. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like the, uh, the famous quote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. That's uh, sometimes how relationships could feel. Um, when things are going well, in general, when things are going well, it's easy to be on our best behavior. It's easy to, be, uh, to feel good about it and, to, it, as I said, to be on our best behavior. But when, when there are challenges, then the, uh, that's when the question becomes a critical question. Will we rise through the challenge to become a better person or are we going to stoop to a low place? In other words, will we use the challenge and the relationship as an opportunity for self-reflection, for growth, uh, for strengthening the connection between us and our partner and our spouse, or will we use the challenge as an excuse to fall into base instinct and negative behavioral patterns? And this is, this is the choice that we're all faced with. So as we learned last week, in, in Lesson 3, um, a major idea was that change begins within us within the individual, within you. If you want a happy, healthy relationship, it's not about what the other is doing or what the other is not doing. It's about you. It's how you're reacting. It's how you're thinking. It's how you're feeling, etc. In short, the critical question is, and this is what we're going to discuss tonight, is are you, forget about the other, are you being a mensch or not? And we're going to define what that means. That's a major idea of the class. But here's the question. No matter what's happening, there's a challenge. It's, again, if, if there's no challenge, then it's easy to be a mensch because there's nothing challenging. The question is, when there's a challenge in the relationship, are you still being a mensch or not? Regardless of what the other said or what the other did or what the other meant to do, or what, are you being a mensch or not? In this lesson, we're going to look at what it means to be a mensch, how do we actually be a mensch, even in the face of challenges that we face in the day-to-day -day of relationships. So the first few lessons were somewhat focused on the theory of relationships and, and marriage. In this lesson, it becomes very real very quickly. So our topic is how to actually engage with your partner when challenges arise, or as the title has it, Lesson for Becoming a Better Half, What is a Mensch? What is a mensch? So if you want to know how to become a mensch, right? Because this is, this, is, this is the idea. How to become a mensch? In the face of challenge, how to be a mensch? So we have to define, what's the first definition? What's a mensch? Oh, well, good, good, good. So let me tell, so wait, actually, no, this is good. Let's get some feedback. How would you define the word mensch? How would you define mensch? Good guy. Okay, good guy. Or, or gal, a manchette. But we're doing it neutral. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for. Gender neutral mensch phraseology. So we have mensch meaning a human being, mensch meaning a good person, a giving person. What else? What other associations? Kind. Kind. Considerate. Giving. Sounds like the perfect guy. Where is he? Where is this guy? Who is this mensch that you speak of? Um, what else? What else? Could he be self-confident? Maybe, maybe not. 
So, yeah, with self-confidence. Who thinks that when you say mensch, you mean self-confidence? No, I don't, I don't know. You mean nice, capital N-I. I mean, ca- I mean, it's, what do you have? For me, it's mensch is how he treats Right, that's how I feel about myself, but mensch is more of how you're relating to others. I, I, I like what I'm hearing. Yeah. I think it's somebody who does nice things, they don't really have to. I like that. Going beyond, not because of expectation, but, but because it's, it's really exuding from within. It's that caring person that does something because it actually makes them feel better when they're doing the good deed without an expectation of something. For something bad. Good. I, li- I like all these definitions. I'll tell you how Webster's, our good friend, Webster's defines. Yeah, totally. Oh, Mensch is totally crossover. Oh, Mensch is a crossover. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. God, yeah, this is like old school. Um, Mensch is defined in Webster's as a person of integrity and honor. What do you think about that? Uh, where's the nice. I don't know. I don't know if I like that either. Okay, but here's here's the deal. What does Webster's know? You want a definition of mensch? Who, where do you go? Where do you go? Huh? That's it. No, you go back to the source. You gotta you gotta you gotta get the Jewish definition of a mensch. Leave the dictionary definition in the books or online. Let's let's work with a Jewish definition of mensch. And I want to go to what Shalom said. Shalom, what did you say before? What is a mensch? The literal definition of a mensch Person. is a human being. So when, listen to this. This is, this is our first big idea. You ready? Here's a big idea. Big idea is happening right now. Somebody does something really special, unexpected, goes out of their way, does something amazing and kind and thoughtful and caring and nice with a capital N. And you say, wow, what a mensch. You know what you're saying, literally? Wow, what a human being. So wait a second, what does this tell you? What does it tell you about the definition of a human being? So what is a human being? So we have to understand that when you say a mensch is a mensch, what you're saying is a mensch should be a mensch. Does that make sense? In other words, this is what a human being is. Why is this a human being? To understand this, we've got to look at the distinction, the uniqueness of a human being over all other forms of life. And I'll ask it, so now, and this I'll ask as well. What do you think is the distinguishing quality of the human being? Agency. Say it again? Agency. Explain. The propensity for a person to make a decision about whether or not they're going to do something over an animalistic instinct. I like that. He's ready. He's ready to go. Not a plant. All legit. That's good. Basically, if you're hungry and you're you're about to eat something, it's the human thing to wait to say the bracha and then eat it because the bracha is the thing that makes it human. I like that. I, 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 There's all these different things that, like, you can wait rather than be food. This the animalistic thing that's inside of us. We're all animals, yes, but we're all human beings, so we can decide whether or not we want to. We, we whether or not we have to do something that is part of our, uh, you know, our what's the word for it, physiological nature, as opposed to our, our, our mental nature. I like it. I'm, I'm, I'm buying. I like this stuff. Anybody want to add something or have a different take on the distinction, the uniqueness? Yeshiva wasn't Yeshiva. <laughs> exactly. Of the human being? So I'll tell you how it's broken down in the works of Jewish philosophy and Jewish mysticism. Here's how it's broken down. There are four categories. Check this out. I'm going to put this up on the board. 
Uh, this was our question about the word mensch. Wow, what happened to his head? Oh, here was a little uh, little uh, quiz. Human being, observant Jew, righteous person, or a stingy person? The answer, of course, was A, human being. Okay, what makes the human qualitatively unique? This is the question we're dealing with. Okay, so there are four, before I put this up, let me just, there are four kingdoms, so to speak, or four classifications of life as described in Jewish philosophy and in Jewish mysticism. And it, from, in ascending order, there's mineral life, vegetable life, animal life, and human life. Again, mineral, that's your rocks, your water, things that are inanimate. Then you have vegetation, stuff that grows. Then you have the animal kingdom, birds, fish, animals, all that, living creatures. And then finally you have the human being. So, what is the distinction qualitatively between each? The distinction, there are many ways you can distinguish a rock from a tree. There are many different ways that, but there's one way, perhaps, I'm not saying there's only one way, but there is one way to kind of find a common thread that runs through the distinction between all four kingdoms of life. From the mineral, to the vegetable, to the animal, to the human. And the distinction is, vis-a-vis the growth, but also the, um, the distinction... The question is about limitation of life. How limited is this form of life? So take a look at a rock. All right? A rock can never grow in any way. It's limited to where it is. Now there's erosion, there's time... We get that, but it's, it's pretty much stuck where it is. It's not moving too much, um, other than those, those falling rock signs as you drive down the highway, right? The falling rock. It's not, it's not typically moving. Then you have vegetation. It can grow vertically, but it's limited in the sense it cannot move laterally. So it's growing, but it's not moving. It's not running around. A moving tree only happens in your fourth grade play in school. High animal is free to roam but limited by its natural instincts. So here we have, so again, the rock can't move at all. The vegetable, the tree can grow, but it can't move laterally. The animal kingdom can move, free to roam, can move, can eat, can, can walk around. But it's limited, it's still, it's life form, it's soul in a sense, it's still limited in the sense that it can't get beyond its nature, beyond its instinct. The human being is the only creation that can behave against its nature, which means... That human life enjoys true life and freedom, possessing the ability to break free of even our own nature. That is the quality, that is the unique quality of the human being. And it's one of, in my opinion, it's one of the most profound ideas that you'll hear um, about what it means to be a human being. You are, you have the ability to defy your own nature. You're not stuck in your nature, in your habits, Etc. You can defy your own nature. You're not stuck anywhere. A rock is stuck, a tree is stuck, an animal is also stuck in its own nature. The human being is not stuck anywhere, not even inside yourself. In your tendencies, in your triggers, in your comfort zones, etc. So, for example, if you're by nature a stingy person, right? you're more of a, you like to keep it here, so you can defy your nature and be generous. You can. It might be difficult, but you can do it. If you're by nature a more introverted person, you can become more social. You can overcome that. Now, you know, are you going to transform your nature to always be social? Or at least in the moment you can say, I want to be, I want to stay inside, but I'm going to go out anyway. In other words, you have the ability, whether it's a long-term 
transformation, or whether it's a short-term decision, to override your own nature and to decide to do something, behave in a certain way that defies your nature. And it's that ability that the human being possesses, that transcends one's own nature, that makes us uniquely human. Make sense? Okay. Where does this power come from? Where does the power to defy, the unique human power to defy our nature come from? The easy answer is God. That's, that's too easy. But I mean, within the human being, where does that come from? But that's still, that's God is soul. Soul is God. It's a, that's. Heart or brain? Uh, which one do you think? Is it? Uh, what do you think? Yeah. It's yeah. It's like the, the brain makes the decisions. The ability. Okay, right. The ability. Okay, good. So this is very good. I like that. The ability we can all agree comes from the soul. Comes from God. The pap. It's got to come from the deepest place. The ability to that you're not limited in anything. That's an amazing power. That's. Um, did we say this last? What did we say this? One of the classes recently, we spoke about the human being being created in the image of God. And we asked the question, well, God doesn't have an image. So that means the human being is not stuck in an image. So the idea that you're not stuck in an image, you're not stuck, you're not limited to any sort of behavior, nature, tendency, etc., that is mirroring God, who's not stuck in any definition. So that's definitely a, a, a power. The power comes from a divine place, our soul. But what's actually making the decision? It's the mind. It's the mind that has that ability to control the impulse. What do you have? I would argue that um, it's the accumulation of a lot of smaller factors that contribute to the ability to make decision one way or another. Now, I, I would agree with you. The, it's a combination of many things that is informing your decision, right? That's informing your decision. The question is, where does that decision come from? It's a process that begins in the mind to say, even though I want to do this and this and this, I'm still going to do the other. Think about, think about education. You tell your child, um, I know you, when Sally takes your toy, I know you want to bop her over the head, but don't do it. What's happening? What are you saying? So you're saying like this. You're going to feel like you want to do the bopping. Right? That, that your impulse is, you took my toy, I'm protective, bop. They don't bop. Right? Why don't you... So what are you... You're appealing not to the emotion. You're not saying, don't feel like you should... You should right? You're educating your, your five-year-old, your four-year-old, you're educating your child, and you're saying, you're a very sophisticated form of education, you're saying, don't actually feel upset when somebody takes your stuff. As the Yiddish says, Halavai, adults should have the same type of reaction. Right? When somebody takes your stuff. We're all, we're all protective like that. So, so you don't tell your child, don't get upset. You say, get upset. But don't retaliate. Why should I not retaliate? If I get upset, and I want to bop, so why shouldn't I? That's not the right thing to do. So how can I not? Self-control. Where does that come from? It comes from the mind. The mind says... The mind says, it's a thoughtful process, mindfulness saying, look, I know that I want every part of my being, every fiber that's running, wants to retaliate. 
again, retaliation of a, it's a little strong, but wants to, you know, bop the other, bop Sally on the head, I'm not going to because it's not the right thing to do. Yeah. What happens when your heart overrides your brain oh. and, and takes you down not a good path? Yes. So that, the example, so I, I'll tell you what it says, and we're going to have a beautiful text, text one that really crystallizes the general concept, but not your question. So I'll, I'll, I'll answer your question. Um, or present an idea, at least. In, in various teachings, it says that the heart, which is called, which is lev, right? The lev is the heart. In Hebrew, heart is lev. Lev. Is like, it's like a puppy. It's like a dog. What's the Hebrew word for dog? Kelev. Kelev. Says it's a it's a contraction of two words kulo lev all heart a dog a, a puppy is all it's all emotions all excited so think use this meditation this imagery so you're the human being you're walking the dog that's on the leash so when you're walking the dog so it's a good thing when the dog is schlepping you and you're dancing and you're being schlepped around behind the dog then it's an unhealthy, unless you want that to happen, but if you don't want that to happen, it's an unhealthy relationship. So when you, the mind, are leading the heart, right? you got the heart on the leash, and you're leading the heart, and the heart's headed in a healthy direction because the mindfully you are controlling the impulses, and healthy things are okay, unhealthy things, we're going to cut back on that, then we're in a good space. When the heart is schlepping the brain, say, oh, I, want, I have an impulse, let me justify it to justify the impulse of action, then you have the out-of-control dog, puppy, leash situation, and the, 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 the person, the human being, in a sense, the mensch, is being schlepped after it. Let's read text 1, because text 1 is a beautiful crystallization of this concept. Um, Leah, please begin with text 1 on page 88. This comes from the book of Tanya, chapter 12. And basically what he says is that by nature, the mind has the ability to control impulse, to control the impulse, the impulses of the heart. Now, does that mean that everybody chooses, does that mean that we choose to exercise that power? Not necessarily. But it is within our ability to do so by nature. It's an inborn nature that the mind could, can rule over the instinct. And therefore, prevent the heart's desires from manifesting itself in actual practice. So this is a very critical idea. So, using the example of, of, of the dog or the animal, the animal feels an impulse. The animal has a natural impulse. It says, I'm hungry. Right, as Shalom said before, I'm hungry, it's time to eat. So the animal moves into a space of eating. One second. Yeah. There we go. Okay, so the animal feels an impulse. The animal says, I'm hungry, it's time to eat. That's it, it's hungry. It doesn't have the mindfulness. It doesn't have the ability to say, you know what? I need to eat, but I want to eat, but maybe it's not a good time to eat. Maybe I should go help someone else out. It doesn't have that thought process. It doesn't have that ability to make those choices. The human being has that ability. So I, I, I want to bring out, let's, let's read the next reading. Um, Renee, please read text number two. 
where we have uh, a text from Viktor Frankl, um, from Mansur, just a, an amazing uh, individual, um, the founder of Logotherapy. Anyway, here he writes uh, some of uh, his experiences in, uh, in the camps. Is it, look what he says. What is the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances? In other words, the circumstances could be whatever. Any of the most horrific circumstances that, that where a person could be driven instinct, instinctually to a place of fierce survival uh, mode. Nonetheless, a person can choose, even in, un, under those circumstances, in those conditions, to choose their own attitude, to choose to give away their last piece of bread. It's within the, human, it's, it's within the ability of the human being to do so. This is what it means to be a human being. And, in a sense, this is the most, one of the most critical lessons a human being can learn. Just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean that you have to act. On it. As we tell our kids, we tell, we, t- we tell ourselves perhaps, just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean you have to act in that way. So this is how Judaism rejects the notion of determinism. Determinism would have it that people are preordained based on the nature of things to do certain things. The foundation of Judaism rejects determinism. Because Judaism says that each of us has free will, that anyone at any time can choose their own course of action no matter what other forces are at play. Which gives Torah and mitzvot significance. Think about it. If, if, um, if, if we didn't have the ability to make a choice, to make a free choice, to exercise our free will in any given circumstance, then how could Torah demand of us? How could, how could Torah say, this is a mitzvah that you should do and these are things you shouldn't do? Torah would have no place. Maimonides says this. Maimonides says, a pillar of Judaism, a pillar of Torah, is the idea that we have the ability to make a choice in any circumstance, in any condition, to choose our own course of action. Otherwise, again, what would be the point of Torah if we could say, well, I can't choose, I can't make that choice because of factors, etc. So this highlights a major difference in the way Judaism looks at the word mensch, and the way culture, uh, society uses the word human. Think about it. When a person says, I'm only human, what are they saying? I'm, lim- I'm stuck in it, right? I'm stuck in my impulse. What do you want? I'm only human. Uh, you don't want me to look over there to do that? I- I'm human. Judaism says, be a mensch. Complete opposite. What does it mean to be a mensch? Be a, be a human. Don't say, I'm only human. Be a human. What does it mean to be a human? What's the inequality of a human being? Just because you want to doesn't mean you have to. Or doesn't mean you ought to. Or have to. This is the major idea. This is, uh, this is beautifully put in text number three. Shalom, take it away. Page 89. What is the Torah definition of a human? A human has the capacity for self-assessment. A human has the mental and moral capacity to override impulse. Can a dog decide to go on a diet? A human can choose to follow his moral compass instead of his physical inclination. A human can calculate consequences beyond the immediate. 
That is the Torah description of a human. The Torah definition of a mensch. So the Torah definition of human is something we should all strive for. Interestingly, the term has different connotations when used in American parlance. When a person is weak, less than noble, impulse-driven instead of morally focused, what do we say? Listen, he's only human. But in our own vernacular, recognizing that a person is human is acknowledging his inherent weakness. We see that a human is we see a human as inherently flawed and morally evil. We cut a guy slack because we know he can't reach a noble goal. After all, he's only human. What do you really what can you really expect from this person of flesh and blood? Think about it. The Torah, or a Jewish term of a human, a mensch, is something to strive for, while the American, or human, is a fallback position in case of moral failure. And the truth is that it makes sense according to the scientific uh, take on what a human being is. Linnean taxonomy says that there are only three kingdoms. There's only the mineral, the vegetable, and the animal. And the human being is an animal. So, I learned that in science, growing up, science class, right? Biology class. A human being is an animal. So if a human being is an animal, so then yeah, he's only human. Like an animal. He's impulse-driven. He's impulse-based. There's no higher standard to go to. Torah says, wait a second. Judaism says, one second. There's the animal kingdom, and then there's the human kingdom. It says in Tanya, you have the ability to choose will over impulse. Exercise free choice over your natural instinct. That's it. Well, Mazel Tov, you're a mensch. You're not, a, you're, not just a, uh, you're not just an animal. So here's the bottom line. Even if we're tired and we're lazy and we don't like our neighbor, we can still choose to do the right thing and help them, depending where you are, either shovel the snow or blow the pollen, whatever, wherever part of the world you're in, in North America. Bottom line is, you have the ability to defy your own instinct, help out the fellow that needs your help. Make sense? Let's take this one step further. And this is a, a big step forward. If you look at this chart right here, there's a very important point that I glossed over for a reason. Because it, it needs to come up right now. If you look at the description of all four kingdoms and classifications of life, the way they're described in Jewish texts. So we have here, again, in English, mineral, vegetable, animal, human. Sounds great. But look at the Hebrew. Domain. Domain means still. Still and silent. So that makes sense. Mineral, inanimate, it's not moving, it's not making noise, it's not growing, it's still. Tzomeach means that which grows. Still good vegetable, grows. Chai, animal, chai, chai means life. It's got life, vitality, movement. We get that. Suddenly when it comes to the human being, we refer to the human, not as Adam, Enosh, Ish, Gever, Medaber. In the text, in, in the, in the, in the books of Jewish philosophy and Kabbalah, it refers to the human being as the Medaber. Medaber means, what does Medaber mean? It means the human, it's loosely, refer, it's, not, it's not loosely, it's referring to the human being, but the word Medaber means the speaker or the communicator. So we have something here, we have something very interesting. The way it's described in the books, 
the Jewish books, human being is described as a speaker. We just explained that what is the prime quality of the human being? That he or she is the chooser, the free chooser. So how come we don't call the human being the chooser? Why the speaker? Why the communicator? In other words, I ask a very simple question. What is indeed the prime quality of the human being? The fact that you can speak or the fact that you can choose to defy instinct? We just explained that it's that you can choose to defy instinct. I'll strengthen the question. The human being is not the only creature with the ability to speak and communicate. Dolphins communicate. Birds communicate. Um, chimpanzees communicate in their own way. Various forms of life communicate. Parrots can communicate on some level or at least they parrot words, they speak on some level. So what is this concept? Why is the human being called the Medaber, the speaker, that doesn't seem to capture the essential quality of the human being over and above all other forms of life? What do you think? Good question, not a good question. Too technical of a question? Here's, here's one answer. Many answers are given. Here's one answer to think about or that it's going to be relevant to, to our conversation on relationships. True speaking, as defined Jewishly, speaking is not just talking. It's a difference. Speaking is communicating. Communicating is not just talking. Talking is, I have something to say, I'm going to say it. I'm speaking. It's not really speaking. It's not deeper. That's not communication. Communication means that you're having a dialogue. You're having a two-way conversation. You're having a conversation whose purpose and intent is to bring two people together in a relationship. In other words, conversation, communication, speech is how you are actually relating to the person, sharing how you feel in, in an appropriate way, and listening and understanding and feeling how the other feels. Speech is the greatest tool that we have to relate to others. The single, you know, you go to, in a, in a marriage, in a relationship, there's tension. What's the first thing that we address? The first thing that we address? Communication. Our, our, is each party communicating effectively with the other? How do you feel? Does, he, does she know how you feel? How do you feel? Does he know how you feel? Are you communicating? Are you ha healthy communication? Are you sharing in an appropriate with boundaries? What happens here is that speech becomes not just a form of taking something inside and throwing it out there to somebody else, but a way to really bridge the gap between two hearts and two souls, two individuals. Communication is the tool that we have to bring two people together as one. One of the tools that we have to bring two people together as one. And therefore, it's critical in, in communication to communicate in a way that's healthy with boundaries and borders. In other words, to communicate like a mensch. We just explained before, what is a mensch? A mensch is somebody who has the ability to override impulse. Where is this pronounced? In relationships, in communication. If I communicate everything that's on my mind without any borders, without any boundaries, number one, it may come out very ugly. Number two, if there's ugliness inside. Number two, it's not giving the other person, where's the opportunity for the other person to share? Unless I put a boundary and a border on my communication. So, in communication, the reason why, one of the reasons why the human being is called the medaber, the speaker, the communicator, even though the prime quality of the human being is this ability to override impulse, is because to have a relationship, which is what communication is all about, requires this idea of impulse control. So, here's the big idea of this class. Oftentimes, couples are struggling with what they are calling marital issues. 
marital issues, issues that are relate that that relate to marriage or relationships. Very often, the issues are not marital issues at all. It's an issue of one or both not being a mensch. Straight up. It has nothing to do with a marital issue. It's not like an issue that's unique to the marriage or the relationship. It's an issue that the individual could work on themselves. In other words, it's an issue of being a mensch and responding to, the, to a situation, to, in a certain situation, in all situations, in a different way. So, it's one thing to say, okay, we have this situation, it's a marital issue, it's, it's a, it's a, there's conflict. That's, that's, one, that's one issue. Another issue is, if somebody says something or somebody is reacting to something else in a negative way, in an unhealthy way, in an angry way, in a hostile way, in a non-kind uh, or caring or loving way, that's not a marital issue. That's a menschlichkeit issue. That has to do with being a mensch. Menschlichkeit is a form of being a mensch, a Yiddish, uh, Yiddishized version of being a mensch. The issue is, are both parties, or more specifically, am I being a mensch? For relationship to work, and this, is, uh, this is why we're talking about the definition of a human being in the art of marriage, of course. For a relationship to work, I need to be a mensch. The, a part, each party in the relationship has to be a mensch. And what that means is that when things happen that I don't like, I'm able to handle it in a healthy way. Right? When things happen, right, I have an impulse, a natural impulse to do something, to say something, to feel something. I don't have to behave in that way. Does this make sense? So this is perhaps the, uh, the, the best and most important practical advice for a healthy relationship. Be a mensch. The more both parties are a mensch, the healthier the relationship is going to be. Okay. And by the way, if each party in the relationship or in the marriage is being a mensch about the relationship and about how the communication is going and, and all the issues that are coming up, then there's practically no issue that can't be resolved. If an issue comes up, so everyone's a mensch, everyone deals with it, it's not about me, it's not about me winning, it's not about you losing, it's about me, it's about us dealing with it in a healthy way, in a way of being a mensch, impulse control, I'm not going to just react, I'm going to think about my reaction, I'm going to think about how I'm responding, think about my communication, communicate it in a healthy way, we're going to discuss the, uh, the issues in a healthy way, etc. It's going to get we can resolve the issues. Very rarely will there be a true issue that comes up that's, a, that's absolutely cannot be worked out if both parties are approaching it from a place of, of being a mensch. With that being said, by way of introduction, let's now move on to two specific traits or, yeah, traits or emotions that we are going to focus on for the remainder of the class. One is a trait that we're going to try to get rid of. And one is a trait that we're going to try to inculcate, to try to bring into the to, to 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 the personality, to us, for each of us. The the, and I'll ask a question. I mean, if you you could see it in the book, it's right there. But what is the ugliest, the most destructive, natural impulse to relationships, or that in general that a human being could have? Anger. Absolutely, the ugliest, most destructive emotion is anger. There are many negative impulses. 
and nature. So a person could be lazy, unmotivated, negative, jealous, overbearing, controlling, selfish, etc. But anger is by far the most destructive. Um, they tell a story about a uh, daughter who says to her father, tell me what's the difference between anger and exasperation. So the dad says, let me show you. So he picks up the phone, dials a random number. And the fellow answers and says, hi, can I speak to Melvin? I says, there's no Melvin here. He says, there's no Melvin here. He says, no. what number did you dial? I dialed this number. He's like, there's no Melvin here. Hangs up the phone. Picks it up again, hits redial. Fellow picks up. He says, hi, can I speak with Melvin? He says, I just told you there's no Melvin here. Hangs up. Calls a third time. And he says, can I speak to Melvin? At this point, the fellow on the other end is screaming, I told you there's no Melvin. He's getting very angry. Calls back a fourth time. And he says, hi, this is Melvin. Has anybody been calling for me? And he said, that is the difference, to his daughter, between anger and exasperation. <laughs> anyway, anger... <laughs> yeah, um, um, anger is very destructive impulse. And by raise of hand, you know, I think it's something that... Uh, by raise of hand, who has had an experience where they have lost control of their anger, right? I think we're all right. We're all uh, we're all on the same page. Here. We're all in the same boat. It's and I'll, wait a minute. There's no there's no judgment. The point is there's we we all have a tendency or or a a uh, a susceptibility at least, if not a tendency, to react in an angry fashion to various stimuli, each according to their own nature. If you take a look at text five. Very interesting uh, uh, study, or not study, but a very interesting text. It comes from, uh, from a book called Dealing with Anger, which is, uh, I guess, appropriate. <coughs> text number five. Macha, take it away. Anger is the first emotion that human beings experience, and it is the last one that we learn to manage effectively. As early as four months of age, the human infant's vague feelings of distress differentiate to recognizable for many of us, a lifetime is spent in denying, suppressing, displacing, or avoiding this troublesome emotional I found that fascinating. Four months of age, angry children, Gavaldic. Not my kids. Gavald. <laughs> so, four months. I, look, the idea here: anger is the first emotion that we experience, and it's the last one that we're able to wrangle effectively. That we're able to effectively practice the impulse control over. And for, for many of us, maybe we never fully, uh, fully practice impulse control in our anger. But we can certainly understand that not doing so, allowing our anger to get the better of us, to flare up, to explode, whatever, you, whatever phrase you want to use, is, abs- is not healthy, number one for us. But in a relationship, it's not healthy in the relationship. It's, it's, it's not, not only is it not healthy, that's like understatement of the year. It's toxic to the relationship. It's destructive to the relationship. Let's see what Torah sources have to say about anger. Maimonides... Maimonides, um, we, you know, Maimonides was not only a, a great Jewish philosopher and a, a halachist, uh, somebody who codified Jewish law extensively and systematically, but he was also a physician, he was also an astronomer, he had many, he wore many, many hats, a brilliant fellow. He writes in, uh, in his book, in Mishneh Torah, where he 
puts together all the laws, all the halachot. He writes there about how a human being should carry themselves. What type of personality should a human being strive to achieve? And he sets forth a rule that is known in English as the golden mean rule. And what that means is, anybody familiar, anybody hear that before, the golden mean rule? Golden mean? What that means is basically, when you have a character trait that has either opposite, that has two opposites, which opposite should you choose? Where, where should you be? In the middle. So you have, let's say, um, stinginess or just giving away everything. So he says, look, don't, don't give away nothing. Don't give away everything. Be somewhere in the middle. Somebody is another example. Uh, somebody could either, you, a person could either be extreme pleasure seeker or totally not indulging in any pleasures. So he says, go somewhere in the middle. Don't be an extremist. Don't go either extreme. Right? Overly excited or depressed. Be in the middle. This is what Maimonides, Maimonides advises that he says, look this. Again, he takes a very mindful, rational approach. He says, look, look at an emotion. He says, study the emotion. Study people. Be a student of people and say, look, this person is all the way that way. This person is all the way that way. This is what that looks like. That's what that looks like. This person seeks every pleasure in the world. This one seeks no pleasure sleeping on a bench in the synagogue all day. Okay, let me be somewhere. Let me find the middle path. Let me walk down that middle path. There are a few exceptions to the rule, to the golden mean rule, which is always find the middle between the two poles and strive to hit that middle. One exception is anger. Look what he says in text 6. Howard, take it away. Text 6, page 91. Anger is an exceptionally bad quality. It is proper to distance oneself from anger to the furthest extreme and train oneself not to become angry, even in response to an incident that rightfully calls for anger. Maimonides says, when it comes to anger, don't find the middle. Don't only get angry when it's you know justified, etc. Anger, go run the other direction. Go to the extreme pole of never becoming angry. Not even, look what he says, in response to an incident that rightfully calls for anger. A person could say, well, I'm not going to get angry for no reason because that's not healthy. But an incident that rightfully calls for anger, so I'll get angry. Because it rightfully, right, rightfully calls for anger. So I'm right to be angry. He says, don't even get angry there. Anger is toxic. Anger is destructive. Anger is fire. It burns. It's not healthy. Not healthy for us. Not, not healthy for the other. Not healthy for the family. Not healthy for the relationship. For anything. It says in the books of Kabbalah that the holy Arizal um, was more concerned with anger than any other sin. There's no sin in the Torah against anger. Torah doesn't say, don't get angry. But it's understood that anger is an underlying negative quality that drives many, many sins. So, the Arizal was more concerned about anger than any other sin. Anger, he says, terrible. Now, here's the question. We're saying that anger is destructive, anger destroys, anger is negative. It's, we don't like anger. Why do you think Anger is worse than any other negative quality. Jealousy. Jealousy. You can have a jealous rage also. So you can have jealousy and anger thrown together in a nice big chalent pot. Let's, let's give us something else. Um, another negative quality is arrogance. You say arrogance is also anger. Okay. Well, we're gonna have to, at some point, we're going to have to just... Everything could be, could be mixed in with anger. But why do you think that anger 
is so destructive? Why is anger, you see the question for discussion on page 92, why is anger, and how do you pronounce that word? Anathema. To a greater degree, I'm assuming that means why is it uh, worse? Yeah? Make sense? To a greater degree than other negative qualities. Is anger ever an appropriate reaction? Forget the second point. Because that we already have answered. Maimani says it's never an appropriate reaction. But why do we think that it's... Why do you think that it's worse than any other negative quality? Let's get some, some ideas here. It could. Okay, it could. It could lead to a very ugly physical place. What else? Why is anger so terrible? It affects somebody else. It schleps somebody else into it. Okay, good. What else? Oh, I like that. I like what, I like where you're going there. When you get angry, this is what I want to focus on. When you get angry, and we all know this to be true, when you get angry, you are now not thinking clearly. You are now in that anger, in that space, and you're not able to even know that you're not thinking clearly. It's almost like, what's it like? It's like, it's like drinking. It's like drinking. You don't even know that you're drunk. I didn't know, yeah, I didn't know that I was drinking. Of course not, because you were drinking. It's like, I'm angry, so suddenly the information that I'm getting, it's like I'm, 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 I'm emotionally impaired at that moment. Not only emotionally, on every level I'm impaired. Not that it's an excuse, on the contrary. The point is, though, that it, it doesn't allow us to judge a situation clear-headedly or clear-minded. It doesn't allow us to judge a situation the way it truly is. Some, you get angry. Some, something happens, so you get angry. At that moment, when you're angry, now you can't even listen to an explanation, to other ideas. There's no way to discern between subtleties of the situation because now you're angry. It can now escalate into other situations. It can affect somebody else uh, in a negative way. It can do all these things. But the point is, it's so, it's so detrimental because it's so destructive because it cuts off every other, or cuts off the ability of us to, to make appropriate and perceptive judgments about the scenario, the situation, the individuals, and, and the bigger ramifications involved. It, it, it's, it's like a drug. It's like alcohol that's just blocking us off from that, from that ability. Even Moses, even Moses, our sages say, <coughs> fell victim to anger on three occasions. And the, our sages tell us in the Midrash that on those three occasions when he became angry, what happened? He made an error in judgment. He, again, judgment becomes impaired when one becomes angry. Let's see. Let's read this in text 7. Bobby, take it away. I gave you a short one. Okay. <laughs> Moses became angry on three occasions, and in each instance he made error. Right? He says three times the Torah tells us he got angry. The Torah uses the phrase he got angry. And in each instance, after that, we see that he made... It's hard to say. It's hard for us to judge. But on his own level... There was something that he did that didn't match up to, to the potential that he could achieve. Three times that happened. One, the most famous example is probably when he hit the rock. So the people, I'll tell you the story. Here's the, here's the basic rundown. His sister, Moses' sister, Miriam, passes away. And, she passes away and there was a well that traveled with them in the desert. And we're going to water in the desert. So there was a miraculous source of water that went with them, that traveled with the Jewish people, according to our sages, according to the Torah. And the well dries up. When she passed away, it was in her merit that they had water. She passed away, the water's gone. So now the people, what do the people do? They go to Moses and what do you think they do? They come, yeah, they're thirsty. What do they, what do, they do? 
They complain. We know the story. They complain. Oh, we don't have water. You got. You brought us out of Egypt to die, to to to, to die of dehydration. We're in a desert. We need water. Where's the water? Take us back to Egypt. Oh, Moshe says. Moses says. We're back to this again. Go back to Egypt uh, stuff. He says. So the Torah says he got angry. Then God tells him, speak to the rock. There's a rock apparently around. Talk, right. <laughs> Talk to the rock. No, but this time it's not the hand. Is it? Talk to the rock. And the rock will produce water. But it, the Torah says that he was angry, so what did he do? Instead of talking to the rock, he hit the rock. Why did he hit the rock instead of talking to the rock? We can, we can explore the story, we can spend classes on the story. The one point I want to bring out is, it says that he got angry, and instead of speaking to the rock as God had told him, he hit the rock, he struck the rock. Because he struck the rock, God says to him, you're not going to enter the land of Israel. You're going to pass away in the desert. And Joshua, your student, your disciple, he will lead the Jews into the land of Israel. Moses' dream of leading the Jews, of leading the Jews into Israel, is not fulfilled. And it's why is it because of hitting the rock? Why? Because he was angry. Again, there are many ways to understand the story. How can Moses do something wrong if he's such a great? There are different ways to understand the story. The point is that one point we want to bring out from this is that anger clouds a person's judgment and the ability to see and perceive things in an accurate fashion. And the truth is, there are recent studies, and this is an amazing study, Text 8 is just a fascinating study that uh, corroborates this idea, but also kind of explores the distinction between anger and other, what we might call other negative emotions. Um, Take it away, Text 8, Yaakov, page 92. Studies comparing anger with sadness, worry, or neutral emotions have shown that angry participants make more stereotypical, stereotypic judgments, relying on fewer diagnostic cues, make greater use of chronically accessible scripts, and pay more attention to superficial cues and less attention to the argument quality of persuasive messages. Anger is likely to make criminal investigators rely on superficial processing and hence base their judgments more on pre-existing expectations and beliefs compared with emotions that prompt deep processing. You get angry, suddenly you pull out. I love that. Scripts. You suddenly pull out you know, uh, scripts, you pull out biases, you pull out stereotyping, you pull out like... Because you're angry, so now it's, uh, you just pull out all the, all the superficial stuff without actually looking deeply into the situation the way it is. Continue. Similarly, jurors experiencing higher levels of anger were somewhat less likely to accurately report inconsistencies in line with the idea that anger reduces substantive processing. So you cannot think clearly, you cannot process deeply, you cannot make accurate judgments, you cannot be incisive, you can't hear the truth in a deep way when you're angry. So what's the point? You're biased. You're biased. You're, it's so destructive because it le- it has the it has the most devastation that it causes in its wake. Of co- certainly, it could lead to to uh, to negative to, to physical violence or to other escalation. But even in itself, it's um, let's put it this way: if a mensch, as we described, if a human being the way Judaism defines a human being, is all about controlling with the mind one's heart, one's emotional reaction, then not only is flaring up in anger not controlling one's emotions or impulse, not only is it failing to be a mensch, but what, that, what anger does is it, it continues 
it, it continues the, the, the instinctual processing as opposed to a mindful processing. Right? That's what we just read in text 8. Instead of thinking things through in a deep way and processing and making judgments of information based on the information itself, a person becomes very instinctual. You just react to things because you're angry. You're reacting. You're not thinking things through. Which means that you're not, you're, anger causes you to be even less of a mensch than you were when you got angry. You see what I'm saying? Does this make sense? I'm going to say it again. Anger, on one level, is like every other negative emotion. You had an impulse, something happened, a trigger happened. You have a natural impulse to become angry. You didn't control it, so now you're angry. So you failed to exercise your ability to control impulse, right? Your free choice, your free will to control your impulses. So you were not behaving like a mensch. The issue is further degraded now. Why? Because anger is going to keep you in a space of not thinking. Anger is going to keep you in a place of cognitive uh, um, disadvantage. You're not going to be able to think clearly about something now because you're angry. So anger is all about, number one, anger, like every negative trait, is about lack of impulse control, but anger also continues and, and, and pushes the lack of impulse control and, 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 and promotes, anger promotes following impulse as opposed to following the mind. Following impulse, right? Anger is likely to make criminal investigators rely on superficial processing as opposed to deprocessing. You're not thinking about something. You're reacting on gut. You're reacting on anger because you're angry. So this is, these are some of the reasons why anger is so destructive. And why Maimonides says that even if you're justified, right? Look what Maimonides says. Even if you're rightfully angry, right? Something happened and you should rightfully be angry. You have every excuse in the book to become angry. So you could say, I'm justified. So impulse control, why should I have impulse control here? I'm justified. So number one, it's still not healthy. But number two, once you're angry, now, you're, now your decision making is going to be impaired. So how are you now going to have impulse control over the next situation, over the next decision? In other words, once you're in the space of anger, now you're impaired. You're, 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 in, you're cognitively impaired. You're not going to be able to exercise mind control over impulse because you're now angry. So even if the trigger of angry, anger was a justified trigger... And your initial anger was justified on whatever level we can say that that's justified, as Maimonides says. But once you're in a space of anger, so now you can't think. And if you can't think, how you amench? The point is, anger is so dangerous and so destructive, we need to go, as Maimonides says, to the other extreme, run the other way, and move fast. So now, now that we've explained how destructive and dangerous anger is, now we need to present tools for anger management. And what we're going to do for, for the next little bit is present three different tools to control anger. And what that means is like this. Again, r- recalling what we said before. A mensch is somebody who has the ability to control their impulses, their emotions, in a mindful way. In other words, I feel like I should react, right? Sally took my toy, bop, I'm not going to do the bop, because even though I feel, even though the trigger happened, someone took my stuff, and I feel, uh, I'm not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to somehow get over that, I'm going to somehow control that impulse, and not bop Sally over the head. So how do I get there? How do I get there? It's going to happen up here. Three tools, three things to think about up here, to control the emotional response over here.
So here are three mindful tools to have at the ready to deal with the anger triggers that we all are susceptible to, that we all face perhaps every single day. Let's begin, and let me just put them here up on the board because you'll see. I'm just going to go through some, some slides quickly because I'm a little bit behind in the slides. Uh, we said the natural human trait is the mind control, mind rules over the instincts, or at least could control the instincts. Human being, we had the Torah definition, communicator, we spoke about this, alright, we got it. Okay, marriage, secret one, be a mensch, we did that, danger of anger. Okay, we had that anger action plan. Okay, here are the three things, here are the three points. We have a three-pronged anger action plan, three tools for managing anger, but more than managing anger, controlling the impulse to anger, not getting angry, not reacting in an angry fashion. Number one, and we're going to elaborate on all three, but I just want to put them out there so that you understand where we're going. Number one, I may be operating, this is again a consideration. Why consideration? Because it's all about using the mind to control the impulse over here. I may be operating with an incomplete picture. That's one strategy to use in the mind. Another strategy is, I may be losing sight of the larger picture. These are two different things, by the way, which we'll explain. Number three, who is in the picture? These are the three, action, three uh, tools for controlling anger that we're going to elaborate on now. Let's begin with the first one, which is, I may be operating with an incomplete picture. I'll tell you a story. So you have a fellow named Bill. Bill... Is going is walking over to his friend's house who lives a few blocks away to borrow his car. His car is in the shop. It just got rear-ended. Whatever he needs a car. He knows his friend has a few cars or has a car that he may not be using this evening. So Bill walks over to his friend's house. On the way, he's thinking to himself, "All right, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask. No, he's Bill, right? So I'm going to. I'm going to ask him for his car." He's probably going to tell me no, because it's his new car, so he doesn't want to give me his car. And then I'm going to say, well, wait, I lent you my, I gave you my lawnmower last week when you needed it, so how can you not give me your car? So then the friend's going to say, yeah, but how can you compare a lawnmower to a car? What do you mean, how can you compare a lawnmower to a car? I gave it, I gave it you without any questions, you're not going to give it to me? He starts building this whole conversation in his head. By the time he gets to his friend's house, he knocks on the door, his friend opens it up, he says, I don't need you or your good-for-nothing car, and he slams the door in his face. We do this all the time. What, what, what do I mean? We build a narrative, we build a story. Think about it. We, now, I don't even want to go with the angle of premeditated. In this case, it was premeditated. I want to go with a different angle. And that is, what happens is, we fill in the blanks of stories. right? We fill in information that's not there. So in this situation, the fellow didn't even react. Didn't, I didn't even give it a chance to say yes or no. Already I'm, act, I'm reacting in an angry fashion based on the narrative that I fill in what he is or, not, or is not going to say. How often... Okay. When things happen, we interpret... The, the situation, based on our past experience, our nature, we tend to see, well not we tend to see, we see a small piece, something that happens, and we fill it in with the rest of the narrative. Think about it this way. We do this all the time with personalities. By raise of hand, who has the ability to meet somebody, and in two minutes, you know who they are? Everyone says, oh yeah, I have that ability, you can be, I schmooze with them, I know exactly who they are. With the same question now, how accurate are you? How really accurate? Now, I can, huh? Okay, alright, so some people maybe, but here's, but here's the challenge. 
even somebody who gets it right a lot, who gets it right very often, could get it wrong. Why are you getting it wrong? Because you're not actually... You, you are not actually getting all the information from them. You're getting pieces of information. What are you doing? Huh? You're, fill, you're stitching it together with your information. Based on this clue, that clue, and the other clue, I'm going to weave together a narrative that kind of brings everything together and fills in the picture. Because there's no way in two minutes that I can get the whole picture. So I'm getting pieces of the picture. I'm filling it in with my information based on narratives that I carry. I carry my own narrative. And I carry narratives about other people. And this personality behaves like this and that like that. And so when I see these different clues and signs, I fill it in. So we might be right, we might be wrong, but certainly we we can appreciate that it's us who are doing the filling in. So, the same thing is true with a situation that is stirring my anger, that is evoking my anger. The question is, and here's the thing to think about cognitively, the thing to think about meditatively perhaps, is, is it what happened that is making me angry? Or my interpretation of what happened that's making me angry? And there's a big difference. Right, again, think about it. Is what happened making me angry? Or my interpretation or, or understanding of the significance of what happened, what makes me angry? And we'll, we'll, we'll give an So, for example, I'll, I'll tell you a story. So, Stephen Covey, so he wrote, uh, he wrote a few books. Seven Habits of Highly Effective Jews. Kidding. Right? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So he writes, and it's a famous story, we've used it in other classes in a different context before, but he says that he was on a subway, and I don't know if the story is true, but it's definitely an interesting story. He may have the, the, the license that some rabbis use, which is, a yeah, story could have happened, it's, it's also okay. So he says he was on a subway, and on the subway, if a, the fellow enters, the father enters a subway with his two kids. And the kids are jumping around the subway train and the car, and they're, jump, and they're disturbing people, trying to read. And he's, they're causing havoc, these kids, and he's, everyone's getting upset, everyone's looking around, everyone's giving him the father death stares. He's not paying attention, he's in his own world. Finally, he, the author... Professor Covey himself approaches the father and he says, Herzachain, in Yiddish, of course. He says, listen up, uh, can you, uh, like, a, like a Jew, I'm projecting on him, can you uh, perhaps uh, mind your children a little bit and take care of them? He says, and the father says, he writes in his book, his father says, sorry, we're just coming from the hospital, my wife just passed away, and right now my head is not into it, and the children are probably reacting in their own way. This is the information that the father tells the author. And he writes that suddenly he went from being angry and annoyed to being heartbroken and compassionate. So we can, look, we can understand the story and the significance of many ways. Number one, uh, how one piece of information can change everything. But think about another point, and this relates to what we're talking about right here with the first strategy. Why did Covey get angry? Based on what happened or based on the narrative that he filled in about what, ha- what happened, what, what, about what is happening, what that means. I know that that wasn't a coherent sentence. We're going to try it again. Was he angry? Listen to, listen to the question. Was Covey angry 
Did he, was he getting annoyed and exasperated based on the actual behavior that was happening or based on his interpretation of the behavior? He was annoyed not based on, the, on, the, on, on what's happening because the action could still be happening and he's not angry anymore. He's compassionate. It's not based on what's actually happening that's making him angry. It's based on the narrative that he is projecting, that he is putting, injecting into the story. He's saying, oh, look what's happening. The father, there's a father and kids, and the kids are running around, and the father's not doing anything. That means the father is lazy, or a bad father, or doesn't care, is not respectful for other people, the children are not raised well, and he builds this whole story about how terrible the situation is until he's upset. Terrible father, terrible kids. And he, says, and he confronts the father. And the father says, Oh, that's your narrative. <gasps> Sorry, there's a different story here. It has nothing to do with my parenting skills or my kids. He doesn't say this, but it's clear. What, it has nothing to do with it. You made up a narrative. That's your narrative. It's not what's actually happening here. My kids are running around, and I'm not watching them, and I'm not controlling them. And you know why? Because my wife just died. So you had a narrative. That's not the true narrative. How often do we get upset? Somebody comes home late, somebody drops the ball on something, somebody drops a commitment, and we say, you always do this, you never do that, you're not respectful of me, you don't care about me. We start filling it in, we start making these jumps and assumptions. We start fleshing out a narrative that's our projection. It might not be what's actually happening. So the first thing to think about before getting angry is... What are the facts on the ground? What's actually happening? And what am I imposing, in a sense, what am I filling in that's coming from me and not coming from what's actually happening? Does this make sense? Yes? Okay. I just want to make sure it makes sense. So again, somebody, somebody doesn't keep a commitment, right? Your spouse doesn't keep a commitment. You said, we were going to meet at this place, we were going to talk, what, it doesn't make a difference what, what the actual commitment was that was dropped. And so one party can feel the fact that you didn't show up or you didn't fulfill the commitment means you don't care about me, you don't respect me, you don't love me, you, you never love me, you, 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 you take me for granted, da 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 all of that is a feeling that the person has that they're projecting based on the facts that happen. That's the implication. Is it the implication? Not necessarily. Maybe they just. Maybe there's a good reason why. Or maybe there's not a great reason, but it doesn't mean that X, Y, and Z. Those jumps that we make naturally are impulsive jumps. The narratives that we fill in that could lead to anger, that do lead to anger, that might just simply be not true. And therefore, Jewish advice is, you never act on anger, impulse, in the moment. You always give yourself time and space to consider the truth of what actually occurred. Because in the moment, there's no way for you to assess all the details. In the moment, all you see are the, are the facts, are the small pieces. Then you tend to, oh, I know what happened. Oh, I, can, I bet you I know what happened. They didn't do this. They did this. They always do this. They never, by the way, always and never, terrible words. Always and never, terrible for communication. You always do this. You never do that. You're not communicating anymore. You're just accusing. You're just hurling, hurling accusations and abuse at the other. So, in general, there's a general... Uh, this is not my idea, these, these ideas that the professionals are speaking about. Never use never. Oh, wait. 
Hold on. Anyway, but in the in, in the conver- in the in this type of communication, in the moment you are not equipped to know all the information, therefore not a good idea to allow yourself to get angry until you allow time to pass. There's a great story. This is such a classic story. Page ninety seven. We got to read the story. Trying to take it away. Page ninety seven. Um, we actually have a, re- a few good stories coming up. This is one good story. Take it away. It's going to sound a little strange. I don't know if it will sound strange. It's a great story. Trying to take it away. There was once a son who had utmost respect for his father. Before the father passed away, he told his son, You have honored me during my lifetime. I hope you will continue to do so after my death by observing this last instruction. Always allow a night to pass before you act on your anger. Remain quiet and do not respond until a night has passed. How great is that advice, by the way? You like that? Talk about like not reacting in the moment because you don't know the whole picture. Wait a night. Allow a night to pass. Continue. After his father's passing, the son traveled overseas, leaving behind a wife who, unbeknownst to him, was pregnant. Due to circumstances, he remained overseas many years. And they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have Facebook, they weren't texting each other, etc. When he returned, he arrived in his city at night. He approached his wife's room, and from behind the door, he heard the sound of a young man kissing his wife. He unsheathed his sword and was about to kill them both when he remembered his father's final instruction, and he returned the sword to its scabbard. Thereafter, he heard his wife telling the young man, It is already many years that your father is gone. Were he to know that I gave birth to a son, he would certainly come to marry you off. When the husband heard this, he proclaimed, Open up for me, my beloved. Blessed is God for tempering my anger. And blessed is my father who instructed me to never act upon my anger until a night has passed. It is thanks to them that I did not kill you and my son. All right. Great story, right? It's a good story. It works. It's Look at the, look at the bio there. This is from... Uh, Rabbi Yehuda ben Shmuel HaChasid, known as Rabbi Yehuda HaChasid, it's 12th century. We're talking about this is uh, eight, nine hundred years ago. This is not like a recent... The point is, this is... You know, we don't carry around swords, swords and scabbards nowadays. But, and but the 15 po- years, you couldn't get a letter? They couldn't write? They, the, the 1100s... I, in the 1100s, when they were overseas on business, they were overseas on business. They, there was no... Huh? They were not, they were just not, the communication just wasn't there. And the point is, how, think about, again, think about the story. I, I know there's a lot of details in the story that make us get excited or whatever, react. But think about the core point of the story. Is that here you have a fellow who is witnessing, who is experiencing something. He hears his wife kissing somebody, kissing a young man. That's the fact that he hears. That's the fact that he experiences. He fills in the narrative. Oh, I've been away. My wife is having an affair. I can't believe it. I mean, what, what was he expecting? The point is that, right? Come back more often then if you, if you don't want. But anyway, that's next, that's next week's class, infidelity. But that's it. So, let, but let's get the, so he hears, he knows, or he experiences certain information. From that information, he throws in a narrative. The narrative, she's having an affair, I can't believe it. So he says, ah, sword's coming out. Then he says, you know what, alright, I'm going to listen to my father, put it back, and allow a night to pass, and then we'll pull out the sword. In the meantime, he finds out more information that changes everything. And that is that your narrative was simply incorrect. 
the same facts happen. Your wife was kissing a young man. Turns out, that's your son. Oh, okay, now the facts change. So sometimes we think, oh, you know why my spouse, you know why they did that? And they, it's because they do this, or they do that, or they always this, they always that, they never this, they never... You know what? Take it easy. La- give yourself some time to learn all the information and hopefully, probably, most probably, you'll see that you don't need to fill in all that information. That's more you than actual fact. And you'll avoid anger. Does that make sense? This is the point one of the anger. Point one, step one of our anger management task force plan is recognize that I am most probably, when it says I may, I want to modify that. I may be operating with an incomplete picture. I'm always operating with an incomplete picture. I'm always operating with... Sometimes, I may take a shot and actually fill it in accurately. Most of the time, I'm probably just working with, operating with conjecture, and it's my narrative, and it's my insecurities, and it's my biases that are filling in the information in an incorrect way. So, split-second judgments... Oh, I love that. Oh, she is fierce. Why does she have a bullseye on the bottom of that thing? Oh, that's the heat. That's that's the heating on that, my friend. Oh, that's that 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 disperses the heat. This is some non-stick action. That looks like it's done. This looks like it's um. According to my, I'm filling in the narrative here. This this has done some latkes and some blintzes. This has some some Jewish take on it. Look at. It. I love that. That's that's she is she's ready to go. Split second judgments. Plus heat of the moment equals anger. Your split-second judgments are not based on fact. They're based on your narrative and bias. The point is, the message is, cut that out. Cut that out. You'll be less angry. Everyone will be healthier. Let's look at number two. Second, don't assume, clarify the facts. That's your tip number one. Tip, I don't like tip. It's not a tip. Factoid. These are, these are real techniques. Second mindful approach to dealing with anger triggers is, as we said before, let's go back to that, is to, I may be losing sight of the larger picture, enlarge the picture. What does it mean, enlarge the picture? Even if, right, even if, number one, I didn't see the incomplete, now I saw the complete picture, right? I'm not assuming, I'm not jumping to conclusions, but I listened to the whole thing and I found out, you know what, they did something that I should feel angry about. All right, so you're justified now because you have a real situation, not just your narrative that you filled in, a real situation to get angry about. Wonderful. Take a step back. Not just to see the complete picture. See the larger picture. It's different. The larger picture means in the bigger scheme of things, is it worth it for me to blow this issue up into a big deal? Is it worth it? Is it is it is this really a big deal in the larger picture? I'm justified to get angry perhaps because I looked at all the pic, uh, uh, at the pieces and indeed it's, it fits a situation that I was wrong. Wonderful, Mazel Tov. In two weeks from now, is it really a big deal? In the larger picture of the relationships, we have relationships and marriage. In the larger picture of the relationship, is it really worth it to destroy a relationship or to harm a relationship over this? Take a step back, enlarge the picture. Take a look. This concept, this, this idea of enlarging, taking a step back and seeing things in the proper perspective. This is illustrated well with the following sto- with the story in text 11, page 98. It's a great story. It's a, it's a classic story about a fellow whose name was Count Valentin uh, Pototki. Anybody familiar with, uh, with the story, this fellow? He was a count, he was a nobleman, and he converted to Judaism, and he was eventually killed by the church. He was burned alive on Shavuot in the year 1749. 
on the upcoming holiday of Shavuot, it's the anniversary. He was killed, he was burned to death because he converted, because he was a nobleman who converted to Judaism. It says that he once entered a wine shop in a city in Paris, I think it was, in France. I don't know if it was Paris, in France. And there was a wine shop and there was a Jewish owner and the fellow was studying and he said, oh wow, what are you studying? He was all intrigued. And he says, what are you learning? I'm Jewish, I'm learning Torah, what's Torah? The whole th-. Anyway, he goes to Amsterdam, goes to Yeshiva, becomes Jewish, converts, and eventually uh, was killed because he wouldn't denounce or renounce his uh, conversion. Let's take a look at text 11, um, told by Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Dr. Torsky in one of his books, story uh, that dealt with um, toward the end of his life. Text 11, Howard, take it away. 98. So he was able to have, and of course, very few people are capable of staring death in the eye with this type of, uh, of, 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 of serenity, in a sense, where he says, look, we you think I'm going to be all, all hot and bothered in heaven, be all upset. It's, it's a significant... When I go to heaven and realize how insignificant is this puny little body, you think I'm going to, you're about to destroy it. Do you think I'll make an issue of it? Again, the point is not necessarily the context that he's speaking of, but the general notion of a person being able to take a step back and say, look, in the bigger picture, how meaningful, how valuable, how important, how significant, how make or break is this situation, is this scenario, a person has the ability to take a step back and say, you know what, it's not actually, it's not actually the biggest deal. In the moment, yeah, I think it's a very big deal, but in the bigger picture, it's not actually a big deal. We also have this, this, um, this technique employed by none other than Moses himself, when dealing with Hashem, dealing with God's response after the sin of the golden calf. The Torah tells us 
that following the sin of the golden calf, God says, I'm going to destroy the people. I'm going to paraphrase 12a and 12b. Um, because it's a it's we, we, uh, to, we can paraphrase and, 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 and we'll, we'll have covered everything. 12a and 12b is basically this. Hashem says to Moshe, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people. They sin the golden calf. That's it. That, they, 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 they cheated on me with a golden calf. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty hectic. So Hashem says, they're done. Moshe says, wait a second. Wait a second. You're going to destroy the people for this sin. What about Abraham? What about Isaac? What about Jacob? What about the destiny of the Jewish people? What about the land of Israel? What about the promises? What about the covenants? What about all these things? You're going to destroy the people over this? So notice, Moses' technique is not to say, they didn't mean to do it, they didn't know what they're doing, you can't blame them. He's not justifying the sin. What he's saying is to God is, look at the bigger picture. Huh? He says to God, by the way, we have a t- uh, this is the prototype for us to be able to dive into Hashem and say, look, change things. We don't feel that it's right. And it, there's a precedent. That's what prayer is about. We say, God, yeah, your plan is obviously that this person for th- this moment not be well, but we don't accept that. Change it. You're God. You can pull it off. Moshe says to Hashem, you want to destroy the people. They didn't listen to you. You said, don't have any other gods. 40, 40 days later, they're, they're dancing around this golden calf, offering sacrifice and doing all whatnot around it. So, yeah, you're upset. I get it. But look at the bigger picture. bigger picture is, there was an Abraham, there was an Isaac, there was a Jacob, there was a covenant, there's a destiny, there's a Jewish people, there's a land of Israel, there's a big mission and purpose. You're going to destroy all of that because of this? Look at the bigger picture. This is a technique that we can use for ourselves. Somebody does something... And we fill in the full picture, and it's actually wrong what they did. And we have, we're justified to get upset. You know what? You get upset, though. Look at the bigger picture. Is it going to destroy something bigger? Destroy the relationship? Destroy the marriage? Is it worth it to destroy something so big and so valuable over what in the bigger picture may, may actually be a very small, small, small uh, uh, detail? All right? I may, yes, I may have been wrong, but is it worth it to destroy everything over this? So that's the second, um, that's the second method that we're using. What if your anger is justified, right? The little toy soldier, so, soldiers. Anger management tip number two is consider the larger picture. Okay, good. Let's take a look. We've got to move uh, fairly quickly now. Let's look at the third technique. Again, technique number one is to recognize... Yeah. What was tip one? If you had a screen that was up there for like five seconds. Yeah. Don't assume, clarify the facts. Don't assume that because they did that, therefore they had ill intention, and therefore they don't love you, and therefore they hate you, and therefore they always do this and never do that for you. Da, 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 da. That's your projection of the facts. That's what you're throwing in there. Probably not accurate. The t- second tip is, even if it is accurate, and they did something wrong, but is it worth it to blow up and to destroy everything over this broken soldier? I mean, is, that, is it really like such a big deal? Take a step back. And realize in the larger picture, in the larger scheme of things, how valuable, how important, how significant is this incident? In other words, are we better and more valuable than this situation that has come up? If we're able to be mindful of that, we can perhaps get out of uh, that reaction, that natural impulse to act in an angry fashion. Let's look at the, let's look at the third step, or the third mindful approach to dealing with anger. It's to remind ourselves of who actually the spouse, our spouse is. And as we said in the first class, the spouse, our spouse, um, is one with us. Now we have a significant text. Oh, that's well. That's 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 a different situation. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a different situation. Lesson six is going to talk about divorce and that situation of abuse. That's no one's advocating. No one would ever say stay in an abusive relationship, etc. It's no. God forbid. God forbid. Let's take a look at text thirteen A, page one hundred two. Uh, Sydney, take it away, please, uh, from the Talmud. People do not see their own faults. Okay, so the Talmud says makes a very simple statement: you don't see your own faults. So why? Why not? Why? Why do you think? Why can't people see their own faults? You choose not to. Who does it mean? I'm, I don't know that I have a fault. Is that what it means? Makes us feel bad about ourselves. Okay, so we just ignore it. We don't want to feel bad. Who wants to feel bad about themselves? A painful uh, fact. So it's easier just to, just to pretend it doesn't exist. I want to tell you what the Tzemach said, what the third Chabad Rebbe says about this idea. Continue, 13b. This is an unbelievable idea, in my opinion. What he's saying here is that of course a person knows their own faults. Of course you see your own faults. So what? So the Talmud says you don't. So what, what don't you see? You don't see that this fault is a deal breaker for your being a good person. You have a self-love that allows you to love yourself even though you know you have this fault. You know you have a lot of faults. right? I know that I have faults. Right? I know, let's just pretend. So I know that I have faults. Right? Of course I have faults. I know my faults more than anybody else knows the faults. So what does it mean I don't see the faults? I don't see them as faults. In the sense of, I don't see them as that which makes me defined as a faulty person. Rather, I know that deep inside I'm a good person. I know, I know that I'm a good person. I happen to have a fault that happens. I don't look at myself, you know, a person that's late or whatever it is. They don't look at themselves like that. They say, I happen to be in this moment not coming on time, but it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm a good... It's, and it's a healthy way of looking at oneself. Because you're not, you're not judging yourself by the, little, the, by the little flaws that are here or there. You're judging yourself by the goodness, the depth of your character and of your being. By the depth of your soul. It's a healthy approach to oneself. Here is the major idea. Look at your spouse the same way. Hey, look at your spouse. Yeah, you see the, they did something wrong. They, they, they did something wrong. What does that mean? The extent of that means that they have a fault. So understand, they have faults, but that doesn't define who they are. They're a good person. Just like you have faults and you're a good person. And if your spouse, you say, yeah, but that's for me, your spouse is part of you. Right? Lesson one. If your spouse is, right, is a little, if your spouse, if you're one with your spouse, you share the same soul, right? Not only soulmates, but soul halves. So just as you see yourself as a deeper 
being, as a, a greater being than the fault here, the fault there. You don't judge yourself based on the faults. You judge yourself based on the depth of your character and your, your inner goodness. Judge your spouse the same way. Yeah, they did something wrong. Of course they did something wrong. You also do plenty of things wrong. You beat yourself up to a pulp. You get berate yourself. You blow up at yourself. You don't. Some people do. But, it's, but a person with a healthy self-love is not berating themselves, is not, is not blowing up on themselves, not raging at themselves. A person recognizes, I messed up. I'll get over it. You know why? Because I know I'm not a bad person. Your spouse is also not a bad person. They also made a mistake. They're also human, just like you are. That's why, by the way, psychologically, according, again, this is according to sort of philosophy and everything, but that's why on a deep level, we get offended when somebody points out our faults. Think about it. I can know my fault, faults, right? But when somebody else points it out, I get offended, right? You ever have this experience? Somebody tells you something, somebody criticizes you, you get all defensive. Even though you know you have that fault, you recognize it to be true. Because you recognize it to be true, you get upset. Why do you get upset? You weren't upset before. What changed? You know what changed? What changes is that now somebody's looking at you and defining you by your faults. Because you look at your faults and you say, that doesn't define me. That's a fault that I have that doesn't define me as a human being. In other words, if I was defining myself, I wouldn't say, I have, who am I? I have this fault, that fault, and the other fault. I say, I'm a good person. On page 12 of my self-analysis, I would say, by the way, I also have these faults that I'm, gonna, that I'm working on or will work on. It doesn't define me. Somebody else who says, oh, I, you, this and that and the other, now you feel defensive. It's like, how dare you define me by a fault and not see who I really am as a good person? That's when we get offended. We say, wait a second, you're looking at my superficial shortcomings? You're not looking at the depth of my being, at the goodness of my character, at my soul? That's offensive. Why are we so offensive to ourselves in the context of our spouses? Why are we so offensive to say to look at the other and say, I'm upset that you did this. Wait, they, they did something wrong? That means they have a fault? Mazel of their human being, just like you. And if they're a human being, that mean, like you, they have essential goodness. No reason to get... Uh, so this is another mindful approach to getting out of a, a natural reaction of anger. So again... These are three approaches. I, I'm gonna because we're a few minutes past the time. I'm not, I'm not gonna go more than another two minutes. I want to just mention one point. We didn't get to appreciation, but this is the, the the final section of the class is about appreciation. I want you to read the text homework. Read the text about appreciation. Here's the one point I want to leave you with. Appreciation is a Jewish quality, so much so that the name Jew means appreciate. Do you know how? Jew comes from Yehudi which comes from the name Yehuda, which comes from the name Hoda'a, or Modeh, which means appreciate, I appreciate. Modeani, I acknowledge, I give thanks to you, O God. Every morning we say Modeani, the prayer. It's Jew, Yehudi, is somebody who gives acknowledgement, who gives thanks and appreciation. In marriage, we try to get rid of, in a relationship, get rid of the anger. We have three strategies. Get rid of the anger. It's toxic. It's blinding. It impairs judgment. It's like drinking and driving. Don't do it. It's terrible. And bring in instead appreciation and gratitude. These are keys to making a relationship work. The problem is like this. The fellow, the stranger that opens the door for us, 
we, we, we fall over ourselves and profusely thank. Our spouse that does a, a dozen things, dozens of things every day for us, whether we see them or not, we, are not we don't fall over ourselves and appreciate. And sometimes the closer we are to somebody, the less we demonstrate or the less we feel, for whatever reason, appreciation. It could be because we expect it. We say, well, that's your job. You're supposed to do this. The, the, the stranger didn't have to open up the door. When they did it, oh, it's a novelty. It's like, oh, you didn't have to. I thank you. I modani. I, you're, you're the best ever stranger for, for hooking me up up with whatever that was. Whereas it comes to our spouse, it's like, oh, you did that for me? Yeah, no kidding. You're my spouse. You're supposed to. The problem is that attitude kills, kills the appreciation, which is an essential part of it. It kills that sense of, 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 of appreciation. And that's, not, that's unhealthy to a marriage, to a relationship. So the, the key is to recognize that even though, yeah, I could say, oh, I expect it, you're expected, I'm expected, it doesn't make a difference. Somebody does, especially your spouse, does something for you, does dozens of things for you every single day, appreciate, show appreciation, demonstrate appreciation through words, through actions. Feeling is cheap, demonstrate through actions your appreciation. Sometimes it takes action to stir emotion. So if you feel like you can't really evoke that appreciation, actually give a gift and as we have in text 16, the final text, the heart is drawn in the wake of the deed. Do something that shows appreciation, and it might actually cause the feeling of appreciation to follow. And finally, one of my... Fa- I love this exercise. It's after the key points in the class. I want you to keep on turning until you see... I uh, know, maybe uh, things before that. Let, let me get a page. What is it? 107. 107. This is the take-home exercise. Basically, this comes from a book, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. Okay, by John Gottman and Nan Silver. Take a look at the exercise. On page, I don't know what page it's on. What, where's the list? 108. On 108 is a list of 72 qualities that I can appreciate about my, my, about my spouse or my significant other. Love, that they're loving, they're sensitive, brave, intelligent, thoughtful, generous, loyal. The next page, look through this list, find three qualities and characteristics that your spouse, your significant other possesses. Write them down. One, two, three. And then beneath the characteristic from the list, write the incident that kind of evoked that or demonstrated that. You are so strong when we face the... That's the characteristic of strong. Incident. When we face the challenge, you were strong and secure and I could turn to you for help and support. Whatever it is. You write the characteristic and the incident and then share it with your partner. And you know what? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It will fosters it dem- to show appreciation, to feel appreciation in a vacuum is not going to work. This is a way, a practical, concrete way to actually put a label on what is it that I appreciate about you? What is it about you that I find amazing and beautiful? And, and, and special. What is it that I appreciate? What is it that I'm grateful about? And then share it with the other. It'll make you feel good. make them feel good. It'll strengthen the relationship and the marriage. Folks, that's it. I'm out. I'm out. I don't want to take any more of your time, huh? Number three. We'll put up, we'll put up the board. If anybody wants to stay... Oh, wait, wait, sorry. Wait one second before you go. First of all, I'll tell you what's on tap. One second. Right now, I'm going to give you a preview for next week's class. After that, I'm going to do after the class is over. So anyone who has to leave can leave. I'm going to go through quickly just a summary of what we talked about. And then I'm going to show a video about an upcoming opportunity that we have in the summer to get together on, to, uh, on, a, on a national basis for the JLI retreat, which is a very cool thing. Um, what, what am I doing here? I'm putting up the slide. Number three. 
Okay, apply self-love principles to your spouse. Justify the behavior, view them holistically, love your spouse. Love for your spouse should cover his or her faults, just like it does for you. That's the third anger management tip. Alright, and then what... Oh, and okay, so next week. Title for next week's class is Sacred Space, No Trespassing. Next week we're going to talk about the Jewish take on intimacy, PDAs. You know what a PDA is? Infidelity, both physical and emotional uh, cheating, pornography, etc. Defining healthy boundaries in relationships. All of that is next week, Lesson 5. Don't miss it. All right, um, a quick recap of today's lesson. We didn't do Rabbi Chia. All right, I'm going to show the key points, and then we'll get um, we'll get the video. Well, sorry, try that again. That's the video, and we'll get our key points in. There we go. Sorry. The greatest quantitative difference between humans and all other creations is the capacity to act. Sorry, just getting the volume squared away. All right, this time. In a manner that is antithetical to their natural instincts. The human ability to maintain relationships, and specifically the marital relationship, stems from the capacity to control natural impulses. The more we master this art, the deeper and better our relationships will be. Our sages tell us to avoid anger at all costs, even when it is the logically appropriate reaction. This is because anger spawns many other faults. One should never act upon anger until one is aware of all the pertinent facts, for it is possible that vital qualifying information is missing. Much anger and anguish can be prevented if we adopt a broader outlook. Even if an action warrants anger, one should ask whether it is consequential in the bigger picture. People do not define themselves based on their own faults, instead viewing them as challenges that require addressing. The same attitude should be incorporated into one's reaction to a spouse's faults. Appreciation results from one's choice to focus on the good that the other provides, even if that good is seemingly self-serving. Considering that people are incomplete without their spouse, a spouse deserves appreciation just for being. 